This is Larie Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. guest is someone who I have long admired and have wanted to have a conversation with about so many things, uh, and I'm really glad we are able to have him here with us today. Reverend Dr. DeForest Soares has served as the senior pastor of First Baptist Church of Lincoln Gardens uh, since November of 1990. His pastoral ministry focuses on spiritual growth, educational excellence, and economic empowerment. You have seen him on a host of documentaries. Uh, he is doing the real work of addressing debt uh, and of addressing not just spiritual debt, but the economic impacts of that as well on our communities. He has served as a New Jersey Secretary of State as the first African-American male to do so. Uh, he's also been the former chairman of the U.S. Election Assistance Commission uh, that was established uh, by Congress uh, to implement the Help America Vote Act. Uh, he launched the financial, the D-Free Financial Freedom Movement. And not only that, you guys also get to hear him on the serious XM Urban View Airwaves every Sunday. Uh, he is the host of SXM Urban Views for Your Soul. Dr. DeForest Stories, it is such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, I'm, I'm honored to be with you. Uh, you. You are one of the bright lights shining on the Sirius XM Channel 126 mm -hmm. Urban View platform. So thank, thank you. you for having me. Thank you. No, it, and it I know we tried to get together sooner. Uh, my apologies. I was sick most of December and oh. had COVID all of August, and it's just been a rough ride. But here we are. So thank you. Oh, I'm man. honored to be on your show. I hope you're feeling better. I hope you're feeling well. I'm feeling perfect. Oh, that's good. That's good. I'm going to venture to say thank God. Uh, <laughs> we are very grateful. That's right. Thank God. Uh, very grateful for that. You know, sir, you have such a, a dynamic history. And I remember seeing you uh, and hearing your commentary years ago on CNN's, uh, actually Soledad O'Brien had done a Debt in America right. and a Black in America series. And I remember there you, you talked about the fact that debt and slavery for black people had a whole lot in common. And then a few, maybe now, I guess it, it's even months ago, uh, you had tweeted out something that said to the effect, you know, that we, we talk a lot about black owned right. banks, but we should at some point talk about how few of them are actually black owned. And I said, that is exactly what I want to talk about. So, you know, when you're thinking <laughs> about the role that debt has played in shaping the, the outcomes that we see in our community, can you talk to us a bit yeah. about what it was that you meant back then and how, if at all, your views on the impact of debt in the black community have shifted? Sure. Well, first of all, um, you're too young to have seen the Solar Brad O'Brien show. That was 2010. You were in elementary school then. So I was only two. You must have seen a rerun on Netflix or something. Uh, but listen, we, we went from being enslaved uh, with no pay mm -hmm. to being uh, sharecroppers where we were working land that belonged to someone else and the fees were so high, we never got out of debt. Mm -hmm. We went from sharecroppers, really, to, to this credit card situation and consumer debt. Uh, and the consumer debt is really a, a kind of a digitized plastic form of um, sharecropping. And then to pay their loans and check cashing joints. Um, and so we, we who have started late, we started 
350 some odd years late in just trying to get to become a part of this economy, uh, we are targeted for high cost financial services and 54% of us are either unbanked or underbanked. Mm. And so we use these predatory alternative financial service schemes and it's, it's hard to climb out. And so um, I, I focused on debt because a lot, of, a lot of us would like to create at least enough of something to leave something for our kids besides bills. Um, and I realized from the time I was 18 to the time I was 31, 13 years, I was living above my means. I was using mm-hmm. credit cards as though it was income. And I just never, I never got out. You know, one, one debt turned to three debts, turned to five debts. I was supporting a lifestyle that I really couldn't afford. And my own process required that I take control of my spending and my borrowing before I could develop the kind of capacity that I have today. Uh, but it's a, it's a multifaceted issue. It's not just black people. You know, there is a, and you know this as, as well as anybody, there is a structural uh, economy that, that requires a certain level of poverty in order for a certain type of wealth to exist. Uh, the problem is white poverty is different than black poverty because white poverty can change quickly just based on access that white people have. And white poverty doesn't have the history of enslavement and racism that black poverty has. So it's, a, it's, you know, it's so complicated. That's why I've written about it. It's why I speak about it because we really, we, we have got to get a perspective on this and then we have to develop strategies. You know, we have political strategies, we have protest strategies, but we really need grassroots, individual to institutional strategies to mm-hmm. focus on this economic crisis that we find ourselves in. You know, that, that last part there, that really sits, that sits in me a, a bit hard because, you know, you're right. We, if there is something that needs to be boycotted, we know what the, the steps are. We organize the boycott. We implement it. We protest. We got the marches. We got the songs in the can. Uh, we, we can almost have a protest in a box. <laughs> We're so good at being able to whip that out. Exactly. But when it, <laughs> when it comes to our economic condition, there almost seems to be a sort of baked in acceptance uh, that the bottom of the economic rung is sort of our proper place. And, and I think by extension, we, we also see in, in many ways racially, we others think that that is our proper place. But when it comes to our finances, uh, I, I got to be honest with you, there's not a lot of folk having conversation that talk about uh, ending poverty within our community as if it is actually possible and as if there are actually different systems that we could employ that would allow us to do that. One of the things that people often will look to is black banking. There's a bank black movement. Uh, There is this effort to make sure that we are putting capital into black owned banks, which I I think is an important thing Mm -hmm. to do. But we also know that that's not enough. Uh, And then when we think about who actually owns black owned banks, I'm concerned that perhaps we're not banking as blackly as we think we are. Can you unpack for us what it was that you meant when you talked about uh, the fact that not all yeah. black-owned banks are actually black-owned? Yeah, and, and I appreciate your focus on this because um, with, you and I are going to have to discuss this even after today because mm-hmm. the plot has thickened. Um, mm-hmm. I subscribe to American Banker magazine, which very few black people read, um, but they write about us all the time. 
and I subscribe to it because I'm on the board of a bank, and so they pay for the very expensive subscription. Um, and there was an article in November about, <clears throat> excuse me, a new black-owned bank starting in Ohio, and the headline said, um, "Inside the effort to open a rare black-led bank." And I've, I zoomed in on the word rare because there there are. 17, according to some, 20, according to others, but at least 17 black-owned banks. And I was just interested to know why the topic said rare black-led bank. So I read the article, and what the writer was suggesting was that there are 17 black-owned banks. This new bank was going to be rare because unlike 14 of the 17 banks, it was going to have a black board. Now, I, I'm involved in boards. I do board training. I've been advocating for more blacks to be on boards. So it, it struck me as strange that this article in American Banker magazine had researched the 17 black-owned banks, uh, and we can talk about what that means in a minute, but only, only uh, three of them had black boards. So I called the writer, and I said, you know, ma'am, I'm curious to know where you got your information because I, I know quite a few black banks around the country. I support black banks. And this is the first time I've ever heard this. And she said, well, I got the information from the FDIC, the federal mm. deposit insurance company. And so she wow. sent me the link to the FDIC's information. I went to the FDIC and sure enough on the FDIC website, it, it states that there are, <clears throat> excuse me, it states that there are uh, 20, well, it states two things, and this is one of the issues. In one section of their report, it says that there are 20 black or African-American-owned banks, and then further down on the same page, it says there are 17, and she cited 17. And of the 17, the FDIC reports that only three of the 17 have majority black African-American boards of directors. Mm. Wow. So that prompted, that prompted my response. But then even after my own tweet, I said, wait a minute, I know United Bank in Philadelphia. I know one United in Boston. I know Carver in New York. Uh, this doesn't sound right. Hmm. So, I'm in the pro so so I asked my team. I said I want you to call every black bank and ask them, is your board <laughs> black? <laughs> so, so my my team uh, spent <clears throat> excuse me much of January calling all all 17 black banks. It wasn't as easy as it might as it might sound. And they got back to me and said, well, 15 of the 17 actually do have black boards, according to them. I went to their websites. They have pictures of their boards. Uh, and the other two are hard, are hard to reach. So then uh, I, I started drafting letters to the FDIC because, listen, either one of two things are happening. Either the FDIC is collecting information uh, inaccurately and reporting it inaccurately, mm. or the bank's or the, or the banks are confused about the questions they're being asked. Now, here, here is my concern. My concern is that, as you have rightly uh, uh, cited, if, if, if this article is correct, if 14 of the 17 black banks 
uh, are really run by white people and controlled by white people, then we we have to be concerned as a community as to which black banks are really black and whether or not those institutions are really worthy of the kind of campaigning that we've been doing to support black banks. That's right. If they are not, if the article is wrong, if the FDIC is wrong, might it not be undermining the credibility of black banks? Because when people like us see statistics like these, it causes us to doubt the very institutions that we need to to survive on. Mm. So I've asked the FDIC to clarify. I'm sending out letters. I'll send you a copy. Sending letters to FDIC. I'm asking the National Bankers Association to talk to their members and to talk to the FDIC about this issue. And uh, I'm contacting Congresswoman Maxine Waters, who chairs the House Financial Services Committee, because while this may seem like an obscure uh, detail, this is, in my view, representative of something. I just don't know exactly what it is Mm. yet. You are a bank board member, and for a lot of people, you know, the person at the bank teller, you know, at that window clearly is not the owner of the bank. But we have, you know, some understanding that the people within the bank are are reflective of the ownership. And when we go into a black-owned bank, and you mentioned Carver, where I have banked uh, for a number of years. It's Mm -hmm. it's one of the black-owned institutions that I keep some of my money in. Uh, And and there was a period when, you know, after Carver went through a real challenge after the foreclosure crisis, you know, most of their shareholders, were other banks, non-black banks, J.P. Morgan Chase, you know, That's other banks exactly that, you, right. you know. And so even though it was a black-owned bank for that period of time, the majority of shareholders in that bank were not uh, black-owned institutions and were not uh, institutions that were headed up by black people. When it comes to wanting to be responsible community members who are thinking critically about where we invest our money and, 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 and really thinking about not just do I want my money in a safe institution, yes, but do I want to be purposeful with my money so that the institution I'm supporting will then support my community? Absolutely. Are there questions we should be asking to evaluate uh, whether or not our black bank is a good one? Just because it's a black bank doesn't mean it's investing in the community. How should we be evaluating these institutions with an eye towards really creating an expectation of a more symbiotic relationship? We support you, you support us. What questions should we be asking when we're evaluating which institution to consider partnering with for holding our money? You know, I've been doing community work in various capacities for 50 years, and you're the first person to ask either that question or a question that pointed and and relevant to where where we are. Wow. So thank you. Um, Here is the reality, Um, and I'll, I'll use this as an example. There is a black bank right now that is thinking about foreclosing on a black institution because the black institution borrowed money and ran into hard times. And the black bank is the black bank called me to say, can you help us? And the issue is that the federal government is forcing the black bank to foreclose on the black institution. Mm. Wow. So the, the first question that we need to know and maybe not the everyday consumer, but certainly activists and leaders need to understand who the regulator is of the bank. Is it the FDIC? Is it the OCC, which is the Office of the Currency under Treasury? Uh, Who is the regulator? And 
what allowances, what um, what provisions is the regulator making with that black bank that are particularly beneficial to the black community? Mm. Or are there any? Or on the other side, is the regulator squeezing the bank and putting so much pressure on the bank that the black bank ends up being more punitive than a white bank would be? Right. And, and sometimes, so if, for instance, here's what the government will say. The government will say, listen, you've got 10 bad loans, and most black banks lend to black people. So typically, those 10 bad loans, meaning loans that are in default, the government will say, you have 10 bad loans. You've got to get rid of those loans or get rid of those assets or get rid of those borrowers because those 10 loans represent uh, X percentage of your assets. Well, if Chase has 10 bad black loans, because Chase is so big, those loans only represent a minuscule portion of their assets, which means that Chase may be in a better position to help those 10 bad loans than a black bank. Mm. If the regulators put pressure on the bank, and I've had bank after bank after bank tell me, Reverend, we'd like to help that church that is falling on bad times. We'd like to help that black business but the regulators won't let us. Wow. So that's question number one. Question number two on the front end is this. What are the underwriting criteria? In other words, what is the basis upon which the black bank makes a loan? And so if you go to Carver, um, I took out a loan from Carver once to buy a brownstone in Harlem years ago. Mm. I should have kept it. I'd be a multimillionaire. <laughs> you sure um, would. <laughs> took, uh, and what, 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 what banks do is banks lend money and then they sell the loan to somebody else. Mm. And the somebody else wants to know a few things. Number one, how much is the house worth? Number two, what is the credit score of the person who has this loan? And if, the credit score has to be 720 or above, then you know that whether the, whether the bank is black or Asian or Hispanic or whatever, most of us will not be able to get a loan from that bank if, I, if we have to have a 720 credit score. Wow. So that's what they call the underwriting criteria. Mm. What is the underwriting criteria of the bank? And then the third thing is, does the bank qualify under CRA? CRA is the Community Reinvestment Act. Does the bank attempt to qualify for its CRA status by giving loans or by buying loans? The CRA assumes that the federal government will rank a bank every two or three years on how many loans it makes available to low and moderate income communities. And the intent was to get the banks to share in the burden and the responsibility of lending in our neighborhoods. It's mm. the anti-redlining law, right? Right, right. But banks can qualify. Banks can be superior in their rating, not by lending money, but by buying the loans that other people make. And so that bank may not have loaned anybody anything. Wow. But so what we want to know from banks is, are you buying loans to look good, or are you actually lending black people money? Mm. And the difference between so those these are the kinds of conversations that, that I have with banks. 
Yeah. yeah and, and this is this is huge. You know, we are we're coming up at the end of the break and you know what happens on Sirius once that, that break right, right, comes. Right. It's gotta cut. I don't know if you have a few more minutes. I, I would love to keep you on because I have a follow up question, particularly about the role that the money that comes into the church. Uh, how does that money and where it is deposited ultimately impact our community? I'm glad to hear you say that because here's yeah. the question I want to pose for you uh, as we're coming up Let's on this commercial break. I want to know, and an audience, this is, you know, we have had some, some conversation about this before. There have been folks who have said that, you know, on Monday morning, if every church, a black church out there were to take the tithes and offerings that they had just gathered up the day before and they took that amount of money and deposited it into a black owned bank, it would be an, such a paradigm shift that we wouldn't have to have uh, headlines that say, you know, corporations like Target or, or Netflix gave $10 million or moved $10 million into XYZ Bank. Uh, corporation so-and-so moved a million dollars into XYZ Bank as part of their uh, uh, commitment to, you know, social uplift and, and, and demonstrating they have a commitment to equity and equality, which are not the same thing. But I want to have a conversation about what it would mean and maybe this is already happening and we don't know it, but what would it mean if black churches populated and supported financially by black people on Sunday morning would on Monday morning take their money into a black owned bank and make their weekly deposits in that uh, black owned institution uh, after having asked these sets of questions. Who are the regulators? How are you getting your CRA credits? Are you lending loans or, or buying loans? Uh, mm -hmm. Asking these questions so that they're making informed decisions. What would that do in terms of empowering black owned banking institutions to be able to show up that much more effectively for our community or does that not matter at all does it they could be that you know sometimes we, we have a lot of great ideas but they ain't necessarily supported by the data sir uh, as i'm sure you will know uh, so we are going to i really want to talk about that and and i will Excellent. stay on if i need to because it's a very important question Dr. DeSores has been gracious enough to allow me to steal a few more minutes of his time as we think about the proposition of black churches collaborating more intentionally with black owned banking institutions by bringing all the tithes and offers that were brought into the storehouse into the black owned bank house. Uh, Dr. Soares, you were just about to answer that question of what that would do, if yeah. anything, on the other side of the break. What would you like to, to say on that question? Well, first, let me give you the fourth question. We, especially churches, should be asking banks before we do business. Do you have any black people on your boards of directors? Ooh. All right. But now let's go. Let's go back. So, Miss uh, Miss Daniels favors, right? Yes, sir. Daniels favors. If I give you a hundred thousand dollars on Monday morning, and then I come back Monday night and say I need my money back. Have I done anything of value for you? Not of lasting value, no. You made me feel good for a minute, but then there it goes. <laughs> well, but I've also, I've also, if I did it every week, I'd be a nuisance. And you'd be like, would mm. you please stop bothering me? <laughs> right? Mm. Most black churches are broke. Wow. Contrary to what we see on television and what we read in magazines, you know, most black churches spend what they bring in black mm. people live paycheck to paycheck and black churches live sunday to sunday Ooh. and on on the average sunday if it rains hard uh if it snows hard you know before COVID, when everybody was coming to church live 
on a bad Sunday, from a weather perspective, the average black preacher got hit financially. Mm. So most black churches are living Sunday to Sunday, which means that, that, that the money that comes in on Sunday by Monday night is gone. Wow. They're paying salaries, they're paying mortgages. So the only way, and there is, a, there is an organization called the Collective Banking Group that's based on that premise that if all of our churches banked in one or two institutions, we'd have influence. We wouldn't, but we wouldn't have power. It would be a public relations piece mm. more than economic piece. It's not how much money you put in the bank that matters. It's how much money you leave in the bank. Mm. And so our bank, wow. our church is 30 miles away from Newark, and we, we opened an account in the black bank in Newark, but we don't use the money. We let the bank use the money. Banks don't make money off of deposits. Bank makes, banks make money off of fees and off of interest. And so if I don't leave my money in the bank long enough for the bank to invest the money or to lend the money, then I'm a nuisance to the bank. My goodness. So the dirty little secret is that the average black church is a nuisance. If the average black church closed their account at, at, at a majority white bank, the bankers in private would jump and dance because it's wow. one less one less nuisance. It's when you keep money in the bank that they can use to make money that matters. Mm. You just blew me away right there because I knew that there was a possibility that it wouldn't do much, but to hear it broken out like that. Uh, really does signal to me that we are just at kindergarten level at understanding what is really happening when we talk about black-owned buying power, black-owned spending power, which many would say is not really power. Uh, it's, it's just an ability to navigate within a system. Uh, and what it, we, we have a lot of, I think, misconceptions about what it is we have working for us, what un tapped uh, opportunities remain out there. And this is one of the reasons I like having conversations with people who actually know what's happening because we, we can do a lot of, you know, hypothesizing and, and intellectual discussion, but if there's no data to back it up, it really ends up being a circular conversation that doesn't actually move the needle. Uh, you had said earlier, we're going to have to continue talking about this. And I suspected then you were correct. And I am now convinced uh, that that is exactly what has to happen because I, I'm, I'm shocked and yet now I'm, I'm feeling like we need to begin thinking, or those of us who have not yet been thinking, it sounds to me, sir, like you've been doing a lot of this for a very long time. We need to be having way more data-informed conversations and fact-informed conversations about the nature of what it is we are truly dealing with uh, when we talk about black dollars, uh, how they circulate, if they circulate, and where they ultimately land. Uh, sir, how can people follow right. you and stay connected to you until the next time we can get you to come back on the Larry Daniel Favor Show? Uh, D-B-S-O-A-R-I-E-S, D-B-Sories. That's my handle everywhere. My website is dbsories.com, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. It's all D-B-Sories. Mm, you just said so much and right there. I will, let, I, I will let your team know. When I finish this research on, on the 17 black banks and their boards and why the FDIC has inaccurate information, uh, or to the extent that it is accurate, I'll let your staff know when I have the results and I'll, I'll share with you first.
Thank you. I appreciate that. I will have the team on full alert for any information coming from you uh, and your folks. It's been a real pleasure having you here. This is a conversation that we've, again, only scratched the surface of, but it is a conversation that I think must be had in more spaces. And I'm so grateful for your expertise uh, on these airwaves. And I know people are listening to you on Sunday mornings on Sirius XM Urban View. uh, And I'm really grateful for you giving us a bit more of your time today to help us begin to unpack exactly what's happening when we talk about Black-owned banking. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Keep doing what you do. You're great. Thank you, sir. That means a lot. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. 